This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show about television and movies from the ones on the big screen to whatever it is you might be streaming. My name is Lisa Kovacevic and joining me on the show a little later on tonight will be writer, film critic and regular Primal Screen reviewer Will Cox, along with Triple R's new Breakfast as film reviewer Vishnavi Vajikumar, who will be joining us to discuss menstruation and giant red pandas in Pixar's latest feature release, Turning Red. And the new documentary from the creators of Mountain, the haunting Australian film River, an epic collaboration with the Australian Chamber Orchestra. And shortly on tonight's show, we'll be joined by Nikki Bentham, the founder and producer at London-based Neon Films, to discuss Neon's most recent feature, The Duke. But I'll start by giving the film a little bit of context. In 1961, the National Gallery in London, in London sorry, suffered one of the most scandalous incidents in its history, the theft of a newly acquired portrait of the Duke of Wellington by Goya. At the time of the theft, Goya's painting of Britain's illustrious commander had only recently been acquired by the National Gallery, a treasure saved for the nation from being sold abroad. It went on display to great fanfare in August 1961, but just 19 days later it had vanished. The unlikely suspect behind this major heist is now the subject of a new film, The Duke, starring Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren. Broadbent plays Kempton Bunton, a retired pensioner from Newcastle, a self-proclaimed Robin Hood figure who has felt the long arm of the law for refusing to pay his TV licence fee. Outraged that public money is being spent to keep, in his words, a half-baked portrait of some Spanish drunk in the UK, habitual soapbox of Bunton declares that the money would be better spent on war widows and pensioners for the greater good of mankind and goes about plotting to steal the artwork from the National Gallery. Here's a clip from the film where Bunton explains his heist plot to his accomplice son. I give them the patent, they put on an exhibition, charge the public to see the Duke and give me the proceeds. Bingo! How much does an exhibition raise? 30,000? 50,000? Who knows? The patent's not been out the news, has it? I'll be able to pay for God knows how many TV licences. You're not really going to use it all on telly licences. Why not? Just saying. Who couldn't make use of a couple of grand? You think Robin Hood took a rake off? Aye. Jackie, Robin Hood. What if they're in it for the coppers? You give them the painting. They don't cough up and they shop you. The mirror. This is the workers' fate by Jackie Lad. How are you going to get them the painting? I'll worry about that tomorrow. Tonight, celebration. Fish supper, family out. No, but Dad, Irene's coming round. Oh, the merrier. Bring her along. That was a scene from the film The Duke, where retiree Kempton Bunton explains his plot to steal a recently acquired Goya portrait from the National Gallery. Once acquired, he holds the portrait to ransom, offering to return the painting if the government invests more in care for the elderly and less on frivolous pomp. Authorities suspect highly organised international criminals, probably including a trained commando, have stolen the Goya, but when Kempton's long-suffering elderly wife, Dorothy, played by Helen Mirren, finds a stolen masterpiece in me wardrobe, it appears 
appears that her husband has outdone himself in his quest to battle social injustice. The Duke premiered at the Venice Film Festival in 2020 to five-star reviews and is finally getting a belated cinema cinema release following COVID-related delays. It'll be released here in Australia next week. The film's director, Roger Michel, who is probably best remembered for his films Notting Hill and Venus, sadly passed away last year. But tonight we're lucky, lucky enough to be joined by the founder and producer of Neon Films, a production company behind the Duke, Nikki Bentham. Nikki, welcome to Primal Screen, and I'm sorry for that. It's such a long intro. <laughs> to you. No, it was fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it must be a real relief to finally have your work out in the world. Um, what what was been the biggest sort of challenge in in trying to produce and distribute this film during the COVID pandemic? Um, I mean, I think, you know, as you say, it's just just waiting to share it has really been the hardest thing because you make a film like this that sort of it's full of laughs and it's full of heart and you do that so people can come together and, and enjoy it. So it's just been really it's been really hard not to be able to share it, but it's just absolutely wonderful. The response that it's had on release here in the last few weeks, um, just loads of people getting together and, and having a great night out. So, What has the response been like over in the UK? It's been incredible, actually. We've had um, amazing reviews, um, which, you know, we already had a sense that the critics were on side from our um, release in Venice. And we also screened at Telluride in the US. Um, so we knew that there was a lot of a lot of critical love for the film, but really this one is all about the audiences. And you just don't know until people come out to see it what they're going to think. And um, the response has been amazing, especially because, um, you know, for some of the older audiences perhaps haven't been back out to the cinema since um, the start of the pandemic. So hearing that there's been so many crowds coming out, bringing their thermos flask of tea into the cinema um, to have, you know, to have an afternoon or an evening with their mates has been amazing and and people are loving it. So it's great. It's it's based, the Duke's based on a story which is now nearly 60 years old um, and it's such a ripping yarn. I was just so surprised that nobody has attempted to dramatise it for film before. How did you come across the story? So I, way back in 2013, I got a random email from a guy called Christopher Bunton saying that he had this crazy story in his family and he thought maybe it could be a film. And it was just a really short paragraph explaining um, a bit about the art theft and, and his grandfather, Kempton Bunton. And it immediately caught my eye. I thought, oh, my gosh, that's an amazing story. But I couldn't believe that it would be true because... It just seemed it just seemed too good to be true. But I did a ton of research and it all checked out. And um, and then I thought, okay, so this is true, but surely it's been done before. But actually, because it was such an embarrassment to the authorities at the time that they really brushed it under the carpet and sealed the files and asked the family never to speak of it. And um, and for the family themselves, it was kind of quite it was quite a source of shame. Like they were just a regular working class family from Newcastle, suddenly thrust into the spotlight, and and they were quite happy to retreat back to anonymity afterwards. So they never talked about it either. And it was really only when Chris got in touch with me and said, 
we'd like to tell our story because we don't want it to be forgotten that um, I had the chance to bring it to the screen. And what do you think it is about this story, which, as we said, is some 60 years old, that resonates so well with audiences today, do you think? There's something universal about it, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, I mean, Kempton is such a brilliant, larger-than-life character, Um, but despite the fact that he kind of came from a pretty small corner of the world and you know, didn't have much of an education and certainly didn't really have any resources. He had really big dreams his whole life and he had a lot to say. And he was always thinking about others. Like he was he was really community-minded his whole life. And I think that there's something, um, there really is something evergreen about, about, you know, just a small person standing up to the big guys and standing up for injustice and also, you know, putting putting his neck on the line for the greater good. And I think especially, you know, in, in these times now and with the last couple of years that we've all had, the idea that, you know, a community is really only as as strong and as as healthy as its most vulnerable members and the idea that we have to look out for each other in order to thrive. Um, It's really like the perfect message for our times, I think. I agree. It had sort of, it has a David and Goliath quality about it too, doesn't it? This sort of anti-authoritarian and and the anti-establishment kind of, you know, momentum underneath it all, like taking down the establishment, which you can all, everyone can kind of get behind, especially coming from such a working class town like Newcastle. Um, Where do you see this, this sort of film sitting in the pantheon of British cinema because it, it reminds me of – in some ways it reminds me of films like Full Monty or Billy Elliot even, you know. Does it, what, yeah. What, what sort of approach did you take with the film stylistically? It's definitely got that um, – it's definitely got that British underdog um, feel-good element to it. So I think there's some really great examples that you've mentioned but – when um, when Roger Michelle, the director, and I started working together and um, and thinking about references for the film, we obviously, you know, it's set in the '60s, and it's not exactly the swinging '60s that people might think of. It's sort of it was early '60s, so just before that real wave of, you know, the Beatles and 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 liberation. Um, And so we looked back to a lot of films from that time um, that was like the British new wave of of cinema, films like Saturday Night, Sunday Morning and A Taste of Honey. Mm. And we also thought a lot about the classic Ealing comedies because they're really all about, you know, they're they're hilarious stories of, of, um, you know, the every man speaking truth to power. And um, and we we took a lot of inspiration from those classics. And and visually, there's a real authenticity to to the film too. And I, I noticed the use of what I think was archival footage. Is that right? Is there moments? Yeah. And have you and how, how have you incorporated that? You've you've superimposed actors over that footage, or how did that work? Yeah. yeah. So we, um, I mean, it's a real challenge to, um, to film any, any period exteriors these days because, you know, there's so much modern buildings, signage, cars, people. Um, so we were looking into how we were going to shoot those central London scenes and make them look like the 1960s. And Roger wasn't really a huge fan of, 
of recreating all the backdrops in CGI in you know in, on a computer and um so we were looking at some archive footage for reference and they were so brilliant um seeing all those really old red double-decker buses and all the fashions of the time and so we just uh he had the idea of well what if we what if we shoot Jim Broadbent as Campton Bunton against a green screen and then and then drop him into these backdrops and it works really perfectly we never could have recreated that so beautifully it really does and and just on Jim um and casting I wanted to ask you about that because Jim Broadbent, for me, uh, is like perfect casting. I actually can't think of who else would play the role. He's so um, lovable and likeable in the character. It was such humility on screen. Um, he's adorable. But Helen Mirren, I thought, was an inspired choice as his sort of dowdy, um, you know, downbeaten sort of wife. Uh, you know, she, it's not a role we're used to seeing her in these days anyway. And um, it was really refreshing. She sort of gets lost in it. How did Helen come on board the project? Um, well, I mean, you're right that this was not something that we normally see her doing. We're kind of, we're so accustomed to seeing her with a crown on her head or in some amazing gown. Right. Um, and we kind of didn't, didn't expect, well, we did, just didn't think that she'd be up for it, but Dorothy's such a brilliant role and she's so integral to the story and she's really the backbone of this family. Like she's a, she's a feisty character in herself. Um, so we wanted someone amazing and, uh, we just thought, look, she'd be brilliant. Let's just send it to her. It'll probably be a really quick no. And then we can <laughs> think again. And, um, unfortunately for us, Helen just saw the real beauty in the writing, um, and the humanity of the characters. Um, she loved the humor, but um, you know, apart from apart from this fantastical art heist and crackpot scheme of Kempton's, there's also there's a really beautiful family drama at the heart of of this story, and and she really gravitated to that, and and it was a really quick yes. So I still have to pinch myself sometimes, but uh, yeah, we got the dream, the dream cast. You did. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with London-based film and television producer Nikki Bentham about her new film, The Duke, starring Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren. Um, now, Nikki, in spite of your very lovely accent, you are allegedly Australian. Is that true? Yeah, I am. Can't you hear that? <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm, I, <laughs> Except you did I'm say no worries to me. to me off mic and I thought, oh, yeah, she's Australian. <laughs> oh, yeah, it creeps in. I have been here for a while now, but I'm from Sydney, yeah. And and how is it that you've come to be running your own production company, Neon Films, in the UK? Was it a rocky road to get, it, to get there? Yeah. I mean, it's still it's still rocky, I'd say. <laughs> but um, but uh, I guess um, I mean, I, I studied at the University of Technology in Sydney. I did film production and I worked for a while in a production company in Sydney. But then I decided to um, take some time traveling and came over to the UK. And then I guess life sort of just unraveled a bit here and I um I started working um on some films in production I I mean I started out as a runner and production assistant um making lots and lots of tea 
and um, just gradually worked worked my way up on the production side until I got the opportunity to um, to work with a producer and and produce my first project. And um, and then I kind of just kept going from from there. So it wasn't really part of a master plan, but um, but I'm I'm pretty chuffed with how it's ended up. It's great. And um, from like from your experience, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges for women in behind the scenes roles such as yours? Because even now, it's still I think a recent report said so only twenty five percent of key behind the scenes roles, like directors, editors, executive producers, are made up of women for for you know the two hundred and fifty highest grossing films. Yeah. Um, from your experience, what what are the the, the biggest barriers? Um, so I mean, I think there's a number of barriers. I think that um, in general, we kind of just need a need a culture shift to make it. Um, to make it more welcoming and more feasible for women to um, to really stay in the industry, because I think that if you look at the stats of of um, education and, and entry level into the industry, it's actually pretty even here, at least it is. But then um, we do often see this drop off of of women around the mid career, and often it's um, it's at a time where women are considering or are having a family, and um, and that becomes really difficult to juggle and and sustain. And so, um, actually, I'm one of the founders of a non profit called Raising Films, and we've got an Australian chapter as well, Raising Films Australia, and we um, are a campaign to support parents and carers in the screen industry. So to make it a more welcoming and supportive place for all different people to work in. That's a remarkable initiative because that's my personal experience. You sort of get to a certain point in your career and it, and that's the point when your career is about to take off but it's also the point when the biological clock is ticking and you're thinking okay am I going to have kids or am I just going to sacrifice it all for the career and you think maybe I can do both and it turns out you often can't <laughs> and you sort of put the career on hold for quite a long time so it's wonderful yeah. that you've identified that and are offering yeah. that for new for new filmmakers female filmmakers um and I look, I know you're probably loathe for me to ask, um, but, I, you know, I have to ask what, what else is on this production slate for Neon Films now that um, p- pandemic restrictions are easing and, you know, have you got other projects on, on the go? Yeah, I've got lots of other things bubbling away and I've got actually a number of, um, it's not, not um, by design, but I do seem to be drawn to true stories. Um, I think quite often they just are stranger than fiction. And um, I've got, uh, I've got a film um, in the works at the moment that's a, a biopic about Evelyn Glennie, who's a, a deaf percussionist, um, who's a, a Grammy-winning um, musician and uh, is very famous here and has a remarkable life story. Um, so that's on the cards. And then I've got a, a documentary about the KLF that's going to be coming out in the next few months um, so that infamous... 
uh, indie dance band who uh, who burnt a million quid and then disappeared. Um, <laughs> so that's an amazing story as well. I know there's a lot of people um, at Triple R who are actually hanging out for that one. Um, well, we've been speaking with Nikki Bentham, producer of the new film The Duke, starring Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren. Uh, Nikki, thank you so much for joining us on Primal Screen. We really appreciate it. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're tuned into Triple R. Primal Screen is the program, a show, a show about screen culture, movies, TV shows, and whatever it is you might be streaming. Um, my name is Lisa Kovacevic. Uh, and speaking of streaming, my two co reviewers tonight are both streaming in via the web. We have writer, film critic, and regular Primal Screen reviewer, Will Cox. Will, how are you? Can you hear me? Yes. Can oh, you hear me? I can hear you. <laughs> it's always a scary moment. I'm, I'm good. I feel fine, but I do have. The disease. He has. Uh, so that's why I'm not with you tonight. <laughs> I wasn't going to mention it, but, but you have. <laughs> but I'm tell, glad tell you have. Everyone. It's an honesty space, it is. Um, yeah, and yeah, making yeah. her inaugural primal screen appearance, we have Vaishnavi Vajimakuma. Vaishnavi, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. That's wonderful. Vaishnavi is a freelance writer and culture critic. She has pieces published in The Age, The Monthly, Saturday Paper, Big Issue, Refinery29. Pretty much everywhere. Um, she's also on board uh, on the board of the Melbourne Women in Film Festival and is now the fortnightly film reviewer for Triple R's Breakfasters. So it's so nice to have you on the show. Thanks, Vaishnavi. Um, I know. Thank you. <laughs> to kick things off for this next little segment, I want you to put your mind into a meditative space and float downstream with us. Here is an excerpt from the film River, a collaboration with the Australian Chamber Orchestra. When the first rains fell, the earth awakened. Where rivers wandered, life could flourish. They have shaped us as a species, and we worship them as gods. Today, there's scarcely a river unspanned, undammed, or undiverted. The sheer scale of the human project has begun to overwhelm the world's rivers. Our gods have become our subjects. Well, if you're a lover of nature documentaries and films and you'll be intrigued by this new project created in collaboration with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, River is a story that documents the age-old human relationship we have with these life-giving arteries of water. Directed by Australian nature filmmaker Jennifer Pedham and co-directed by acclaimed composer and creative Joseph Nizetti, River is a spectacle. Richard Tognetti and the Australian Chamber Orchestra, along with the haunting voice of Kalkadunga man William Barton, form River's soundtrack, plus the additional music by Johnny Greenwood and Radiohead. 
narrated by Willem Dafoe, not Morgan Freeman, which um, the panel operator mistakenly thought it was, and so did this here reviewer. (laughs) This film comes from the director that bought us Solo, Miracle on Everest, Sherpa and Mountain. Following the Pedum success, sorry, following Pedum success, I should say, with Mountain, River is the next instalment in the planned trilogy of orchestral concert films. River uses the same formula as Mountain, a mix of epic cinematography, a swirling orchestral score, rich voiceover from Willem Dafoe and post-poetic script by Robert McFarlane. However, while their first film, Mountain, was a story about those who seek risk and challenge in mountains, River is a much more universal one. The essential need for fresh water is common to all people and indeed all life on this planet. Um, Will, what did you think about uh, of this uh, documentary and, and what it tells us about the human uh, interaction with water and river throughout history? It's very beautiful. You mentioned the word spectacle. It is a huge spectacle. Um, and I think, I mean, it does, it obviously has a lot of interesting stuff to say about our relationship with rivers. And I think where it focuses on the human side of things, that's where it's really interesting. Um, but I do think sometimes the spectacle gets in the way. I mean, it can be a little bit like a screensaver at times. It's a lot of, and you can't really emotionally engage with a screensaver. It's a lot of um, very beautiful um, drone footage yeah. for, for 85 minutes, which is, you know, great, but I don't know. Did you have that problem, Vision V? I just felt sometimes I just couldn't emotionally attach myself to it. It was interesting watching it. Like, honestly, I felt so relaxed. And I think this, like, I hate to bring up the pandemic, but, you know, the pandemic, um, we weren't able to go outdoors and engage with the external environment. And that film actually transported me there. And it felt really, really beautiful. Um, I have to agree with you on, in terms of like the depth of, of the, the film in itself. Like, you know, sometimes the um, poetry that Willem Dafoe was reciting felt quite um, philosophical and spiritual but didn't feel specific enough. And when I'd see footage of all of the different contexts that the film explores, I felt wanted, like I felt like I wanted more. I wanted more information about what are some of the issues that the footage is exploring? What are the communities and, and countries and regional areas that the film is, um, the context of that film? So, yeah, I, I, I loved it. I thought visually it, on a big screen it would look amazing, but I did feel like it was missing some critical information about a film that was meant to be, I guess, centred around environmentalism in some respect. Yeah. If any information. Any yeah, just anything. Would <laughs> yeah. love anything. Would love it's, anything. It's very big picture, you know, and it's quite poetic. And some of that's really great. Some of that really works. And there was one fact in there, I think, that the grandest dams have impounded so much water that they've slowly, they've slowed the rotation of the earth. I had I did not know that. That's an amazing fact. It's alarming. It's a strong line. Yeah. Not for its poetry, but for its sort of astute factualness. I, I guess. Yeah, agreed, Will. Like, and I felt like, I, yeah, I would have liked to know more. It just, it did leave you wanting more, didn't it? I think that lack of specificity um, kind of impacted my viewing experience. There were images of um, people protesting dams and dams being blown up. And I just wanted to know where those dams were and why they were being blown up. Were governments held to account? What had, what wasn't working? Um 
But, you know, uh, in the defence of the film, I mean, they also work because there's this – I felt like there was a build-up. I felt that the editing was very smooth and clever. Um, and at, at the points where dams were exploding or releasing gushing water, I felt relief and um, a vis- on a visceral level. And, and I appreciated mm. the film, I think, in that way. I think as you have to probably view this film in a different way. It, it doesn't have a – a, th- a strong narrative as such um, and the filmmakers have said it sort of defies genre although for me it was a horror film at times because it's very scary you yeah. know where we are um, a- as a species uh, in relationship to uh, the environment and our impact on it mm, for sure and I was and I was kind of interested in our evolving relationship you know the human intervention in the environment I think that's what really centers the film how our relationship with water has evolved and how we've actually impacted on that resource um, globally so yeah I, I could see your point too in terms of it exploring our broader relationship in a very macro sense even though it didn't really delve into the micro yeah. no that's right it does come good I think in the last 10 minutes or so it really it's it really started to grab me in a way that it it hadn't up to that point but um, one thing I will note, though, is this uh, right at the beginning, opening with footage of the, the chamber orchestra with Richard Tognetti and with Willem Dafoe, and it, cert- it appears that they are recording this together, um, which just made me see that completely differently because I would have thought it's orchestral music, it's footage and it's narration, and Dafoe could be in a booth somewhere in LA just phoning this in, you know, literally phoning it in, but, well, much like I am right now. But... Uh, instead it makes it kind of like a libretto, you know, like he's performing this right alongside uh, the the chamber orchestra, which made it, yeah, I think that that inclusion right at the beginning really made me feel differently about it. It's a beautiful and I think, collaboration in that regard. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the um, sound with Willem Dafoe's really kind of soft and, and, and eloquent voice and then the music and paired with the footage, like the editing and the combination of all those things actually are what make it so experiential as a documentary. Agreed, yeah. And I like the He's- neat opening and closing of the orchestra singer and the voiceover all warming up together and closing together. Mm. We, we return to the studio at the end. Um, mm. And I think that that's a nice, because it's a difficult film to finish. How do you finish a film like this, you know? The explosion of the, well, maybe I shouldn't. It's not a spoiler. <laughs> it's no spoilers. No spoilers. There are no spoilers. No. There's no plot. Right, well, it, does, it does culminate, it does culminate in, uh, as, you, as you said before, um, dams being blown up, which I think is a really beautiful, cathartic image to end on. It is, you know. yeah. And also, I mean, yeah. the, 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 the images of um, wealthy cities versus, versus poor ones, you know, that... that um, the, the benefits that we receive, you know, in terms of clean water and energy efficiency are at the cost of somebody else downstream. And you see that I really appreciated the images of, um, you know, third developing world nations cleaning out gunk and plastics from the river. But I would have liked more mm. context. I would have liked to know exactly where those places yeah. were and who those people were. Well, exactly, because all of that footage we've seen so many times before, you mm. know, we all know all of that, mm. but it doesn't emotionally hit maybe because of oversaturation because we've just seen it so many times you see melting icebergs you see plastic flooding the ocean and uh, yeah it would have been nice to have some 
something yeah, to ground some context, it in a human yeah. experience. Yeah, but I really, I for me, I actually really enjoyed the experience of this film. I loved that um, there's a real connection made, not consciously, but you sort of pick up on it after a while because of all these aerial shots, um, the connection between human veins and the veins of the river. Um, I loved that symbolism. Mm. I thought that that was just so beautiful and it really left an impact on me, you know, in a um, spiritual kind of a way, which obviously, and, and the way that at a great height the, the veins of the river look like trees. You know, yes, like I agree, just, yes. The images yeah. just keep coming back in, yeah. I and mean, the, the drone footage is amazing. There was this sweeping down a, a waterfall or something Yeah, um, about a third of the way in, which was just incredible. Like, yeah, yeah, some of the footage reminded me of acrylic paintings, like really mm. textured, a lot of depth, and I was reflecting on it and I feel like, a lot of environmental films really go for that hard-hitting message and human rights activism message. And maybe the subtlety of this film might actually engage people who may not resonate with those hard-hitting messages mm. as much, like the Guardian articles or those kind of left-wing articles around, like, we have to act now, that mm-hmm. might switch off a lot of people, kind of like what you were saying. We see that hard-hitting footage all the time and it makes mm. us switch off from the messaging. So maybe this is a great way to engage broader audiences to consider what our connection to water as a resource is. Is. I think it's a great point, Vaishnavi. Um, yeah. We, we've been discussing the new Australian documentary, River, which you can see with the Australian Chamber Orchestra live when it tours through Australia through July and August. Um, you can see dates at venues including Sydney's Recital Hall, Melbourne Recital Centre and Melbourne's Hamer Hall Art Centre. Uh, the film is also currently playing in cinema on wide national release. Uh, next we'll be discussing the new Disney Pixar animated film, Turning Red, in which dorky Canadian Asian May Lee... Uh, a confident 13-year-old is torn between staying her, her mother's dutiful daughter and the allure and chaos of adolescence. Her protective, if not slightly overbearing mother, Ming, voiced by Sandra Oh, is never far from her daughter, an unfortunate reality for the new teenager who is just discovering boys and an uncontrollable, if quite innocent, sex drive. Like all preteens on the cusp of adulthood, changes to, to interests, relationships and physical body are imminent. But to add to the complications of teen life, whenever May Lee gets too excited, which is most of the time, she spontaneously poofs into a giant red panda. A curse or is it a blessing that she has inherited through her female line? Here's a clip of the moment May Lee discovers her body is changing. Breakfast is ready. Mm. Wait, no sugar. Coming. Mm, porridge. Is it a fever? A stomachache? Chills? Constipation? Wait, is it that? Did the... Did the red peony bloom? No! Maybe... That was a clip from Pixar's Turning Red, where transforming into a giant red panda is an intentionally thinly veiled stand-in for getting your period. Directed by Academy Award winner Domi Shi, for which she won an Oscar for the Pixar short Bow, and produced by Lindsay Collins, Turning Red is streaming exclusively on Disney Plus now and is the first female-directed Pixar film. 
Vaishnavi, what did you make of this panda exploding preteen animation? I honestly loved it. Um, the actual nature of the women or the young women in the show actually reminded me a lot of um, Never Have I Ever, which is the Mindy Kaling produced um, show on Netflix. And Maitreyi Ramakrishnan, who um, actually stars in that TV series, is one of the characters in this movie. I really personally connected with Mei Lin and her journey. Um, myself, I remember getting my period for the first time. And in Tamil Hindu culture, it kind of culminates in a religious ceremony in front of your family and friends it's the first time you wear a sari it's like the most highly embarrassing experience of your life and you're kind of playing it out in front of all of your closest family and friends so I definitely related to Maylin's experience and you know trying to discover boys and boy girl parties and all those things that come with coming of age when you're a tween what I also really loved about this is Disney's approach to exploring ethnic relationships or ethnic families I think Disney did that in this film really, really well. It understood the metaphor around the tiger parent, which is a common metaphor in Asian communities about really strict parents that are pushing you to succeed. But I guess in this case, it would be a panda parent. Um, but I, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was great. Uh, Will, could you relate to turning into a panda <laughs> <laughs> at um, 13? <laughs> to an extent, my experience was not the same as yours, especially because... Um, yeah, well, things were things were quite different. Mine was far more my my adolescence was far more get out of my room kind of slam the door. <laughs> um, but um, no, you know, there's a lot to there's a lot to enjoy in it. But I I think maybe um, there's there's um, yeah, I, I engage with it less. I think. But what's interesting though is the fact that it's because it's set in 2002, and I'm not entirely sure why. Um, yeah. Apart from perhaps that's because the director was that age at that time. I think that's well, true. So was I. Yeah. All oh, right. You were too. Right. Around about. Yeah. Pretty. Oh, maybe I'm a bit older, but yeah, yeah close enough. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So just that that world. Well, I but I suspect. That, oh, sorry. Thing, yeah. Go. I was going to say one thing that I suspect setting it at that time does do. Um, which has an impact on on how you tell the story is there's no social media. Correct. Um, so yeah. I wonder how that would have that would have panned out. Well, I think um, it would have just added another layer of complexity that the, the story probably didn't need because it's the first time an animated series is exploring, um, you know, female, um, you know, menstrual cycles. For it's a children's movie. I watched it with mm. my nine year old, and I do wonder if she was too young for it. Um, she, I mean, it's not. It's pretty heavy handed the way they're talking. That the, the red panda is sort of a stand in for getting your period. I mean, her mother asked do you need pads when she says she's transforming mm. into the red panda um but my daughter didn't pick up on those things and so for her it was just a, a a movie about a girl growing up um and so I think it's okay for a, like a, a nine to sort of 12 year old to watch this film they'll get something else out of it um but she mm. still found it gross because she was like well you know the the, the interest in boys and Boy Boys Ill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she found that a little bit too uh, challenging. There's a um, uh, a band in it that the girls are obsessed with. So mainly the main character has uh, a little group of, of girls, which there's something um, a, a little bit uh, – I'm trying to think of that animated series that it reminds me of, but they're not – I like the way that the girls are a little bit um, – genderless somehow like they're not girly girls they're sort of dorks um but they've they've got a good sort of you know community spirit about them um charlie brown that's what they remind me of they remind me of right, sort of right. charlie brown they feel, they feel yeah. like a very real group of young girls they felt very real to me yeah they did and they have this obsession with this band called uh four town 
Is that right? But there are five of them. Yeah. I yeah. found that so strange. I That's got why so I questioned myself. About that. Yes. But um, mm-hmm. I think another uh, another thing that dates it in around 2001, Will, is that it, it seems to be heavily um, influenced by NSYNC or even Backstreet Boys for an older reference. Yeah. Um, and that's about the only thing that, that nostalgia has really picked up on from that era, I think, is the boy bands and a bit of the music. But, main, yeah, mainly the boy bands is the only thing that kind of mainstream pop culture has really picked up from that time as yet. Yes. I'm sure in five years everybody's going to be walking around with a discman or something. I don't know. <laughs> I, but, I kind of, um, sorry, Will, did I cut you off? No, go, no. I, I, I kind of like your um, the fact that you watched it with your daughter, Lisa, and that, you know, I think with Disney films, they're such a, they're, they're really catered to multi-generational viewing. Like young children who may not understand some of the deeper jokes or the more mature jokes will, will get out of it like a fantasy about a girl that turns into a panda, whereas uh, women who are older or children who are older will understand that second layer around, you know, uh, puberty and, and, and all the messages that um, come into that. And I actually really loved that the writing was so good. Like I had genuine laughs throughout watching it. And I think the director and the writers didn't underestimate the the young women in that film. They really, yeah, they, they, they didn't try to censor them. They, they really expressed their sexuality quite fully. Yeah, they were fully formed young women and all the experiences that kind of come with that. I really loved that about the film. What are you Just on, uh, on yeah, the so writing? Yeah. Sorry, Lisa. No, on. no, go, Will. Oh, I was just going to say, on the writing, though, do you, do you ever think with Pixar, especially maybe in the last five, ten years or so, it's quite formulaic these days? I mean, it, it keeps returning to the same tropes and storytelling methods, and it feels a bit, maybe not formulaic, but on brand, which, you know, you know exactly what you're going to get and it's not taking any risks in I mean, it to you. I've got to say there's definitely a theme of transformation in um, mm. Pixar films, and this film reminded me a lot of Brave, um, which came and out. And Coco. And Coco, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And Brave is a very similar similar story, actually. It's about a young girl, in this case, I think she's a Scottish princess um, some hundreds of years ago, um, uh, who doesn't want to fulfil her princess duties and goes against her mother and um, gets a a spell from a witch which transforms her mother, interestingly, into a bear. Um, And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I feel like this is a more successful um, interpretation Mm -hmm. of that dynamic, that mother-daughter dynamic, because it's a bit more layered. Like the the mother isn't – although the mother wasn't villainous in Brave either, but the mother isn't positioned as a villain at all, which I really like. Um, But in this this – uh, iteration, you get more of a backstory where where it's a really difficult um, relationship for the mother to sort of uh, navigate as well as it is for the daughter. The mother's trying to having to let go, and the daughter's having to let go of childhood. Similar to uh, Inside Out, actually, that sort of letting go of childhood. Although this is more about adulthood than it is childhood. It's entering adulthood. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's definitely. I mean, they're definitely uh, common themes in Pixar films and common tropes as well. What do you think about, mm. like, that use Vaishnavi of, of, um, of transformation in, in characters in the Pixar universe? I actually kind of love it, actually. Like, I like the idea that they're exploring um, characters that are at a certain stage where they're looking to change or, or they're at a time of change and using transformations whether it be into you know um animiguses or whatever it might be um as a way to talk about how 
about growing up, really. And I think you touched on something there about um, the mother-daughter relationship. And what I really loved is the fact that it acknowledges that even the mother was once a daughter and how that intergenerational relationship impacts on how she relates to her daughter. And what I loved about the resounding overall message of the film is that often women are really censored when it comes to their emotions and their experiences and this film really talked about you know when when I'm moody or you know when I'm having these kind of emotional moments that's actually a part of me it's not something I need to take away or hide it's actually part of who I am and I'm, I'm happy to accept that wholly. I was actually confused about um there's a uh a, a sort of an element to the storyline uh, where there's a historical reason why they transform into pandas when they get emotional, and it's um, and they keep uh, they have to go through a ceremony to keep their panda trapped um, uh, within an amulet or a ring or something like that. It's this generational thing, and I what do you think that that's standing in for Vaishnavi in terms of? Uh, women's I'm, I'm thinking women's oppression there's something about the female experience that's being oppressed there but I couldn't quite get my head around what Pixar's message was there you know are they saying because yeah I couldn't really tell you know I, I, I felt like they were saying unleash it <laughs> unleash that sort of oppressed part of you but there's a part of the film that that doesn't send that message I'm trying not to give spoilers here what did you think of that yeah. Totally. I think it's about compartmentalization. You know, it's like keep your emotions or your feelings or these other parts of yourself like locked in a box or an amulet or whatever, whatever it might be. But I also think Disney films, you know, films like Mulan, they've they've often in some ways exploited um, orient aspects of Oriental cultures and things like that. And, and, and that kind of ethnography, I guess is the word. Um, so I think maybe this is a part of that as well to bring more of that cultural element into it. And, and you know, the, the kind of cynic in me also says, you know, Disney's probably going to make a lot of money um, out of this. And, you know, they do tend to commercialise cultures for that gain. But I think in terms of this film being an entry point for intergenerational women to have that conversation about their bodies, I think it does that. Yeah, agreed. Um, look, I better wrap wrap up this little chat we've been having. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Three Triple R with myself, Lisa Kovacevic, Wilcox, and Vaishnavi Vajia Kumar. Uh, we were just chatting about uh, Turning Red, which is currently streaming on Disney Plus. Uh, if you'd like to check that out. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 